Well, let us go ahead and move into our teaching for today. We are continuing in our series on the life of David, and today we are in 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 19 today, and I'll start reading in verse 16 once you get there. If you don't have a Bible with you or you're having a hard time finding it, then we'll have the text on the screens next to me so that you can follow along there so that nobody will be left behind. All right, well, like I said, today we are going to be learning from 2 Samuel chapter 19 and starting in verse 16. And so starting in verse 16, it says, Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Beharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men from Benjamin with him. Ziba, an attendant from the house of Saul with his 15 sons and 20 sons, servants, also rushed down to the Jordan ahead of the king. They forded the Jordan to bring the, king, uh, the king's household across to do whatever the king desired. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell down before the king and said to him, My lord, don't hold me guilty, and don't remember your servant's wrongdoing on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king not take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. But look, today I am the first one of the entire house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, son of Zariah, asked, shouldn't, we put Shimei to, uh, shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? David answered, sons of Zariah, do we agree on anything? Have you become my adversary today? Should any man be killed in Israel today? Am I not aware today that I'm king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you will not die. Then the king gave him his oath. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet, trimmed his mustache, or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? My lord the king, he replied, my servant Ziba betrayed me. Actually, your servant said, I'll saddle the donkey for myself so that I may ride it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. Ziba slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God, so do whatever you think is best. For my grandfather's entire family deserves death from my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. So what further right do I have to keep on making appeals to the king? The king said to him, why keep on speaking about these matters of yours? I hereby declare, you and Ziba are to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, instead, since my lord the king has come to his palace safely, let Ziba take it all. Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim and accompanied the king to the Jordan River to see him off at the Jordan. Barzillai was a very old man, 80 years old, and since he was a very wealthy man, he had provided for the needs of the king while he stayed in Mahanaim. The king said to Barzillai, Cross over with me, and I'll provide for you at my side in Jerusalem. Barzillai replied to the king, How many years of my life are left that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I am now 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or drinks? Can I still hear the voice of male and female singers? Why should your servant be made an added burden to my lord the king? Since your servant is only going with the king a little way across the Jordan, why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return 
so that I may die in my own city near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king. Do whatever seems good to you. The king replied, Kimham will cross over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and whatever you desire from me, I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and then the king crossed. The king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and Barzillai returned to his home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went with him. All the troops of Judah and half of Israel's escorted the king. So we've looked at the life of David for quite a while now. We've seen David go through all these ups and downs throughout his life, and now we've seen him in his time as king go through some ups and downs. There was a golden age of David's kingship in Israel whenever he had finally received the kingdom. He was sitting as king on the throne, and all of Israel's enemies had been subdued, defeated. There was unity in the kingdom among all the tribes. But then in 2 Samuel uh, 12, we read about David's sin with Bathsheba, how he took Bathsheba for himself and then had her husband Uriah killed to try to cover up what he had done. And this is a marking point. It's a watershed moment in the life of David because it ends that golden age of Israel and of David's kingdom. And now we see all of these um, conflicts. We see all of these rebellions and troubles break out within the household of David and within the kingdom because this was a part of God's judgment upon David for his sin. So one of David's sons named Absalom rises up and leads a rebellion against David that... uh, forces him to flee from the kingdom. They have a great battle. Absalom is defeated, and now David returns to his kingdom. But as you can imagine, in a nation where there has just been a, a coup that allow, that forces its king to have to flee from his capital city and then have a civil war, um, you can imagine how as he returns, this leaves his kingdom and his throne in a very fragile state. Things are very fragile in Israel right now as he returns because the people who are waiting for their king to return are wondering, how is he going to rule over us now? Is he going to seek retribution for our rebellion against him? Is he going to start to just favor those who didn't rebel against him? And you also have all of these unsavory characters, all these untrustworthy people who are going to start to pop up to try to take uh, advantage of what they see as an opportune moment in the instability and how fragile the kingdom is at this point. And so we look at, so we're going to observe how David returns into this very precocious and very uh, fragile situation among all kinds of people that some he knows and he can trust, others he doesn't know if he can trust, and more wannabe rebels and uh, rebellious leaders. And so in this story here, what we have is he is returning into this city. It actually provides us with a near-perfect parallel of whenever David was fleeing the city. If you go back and read chapter 16 again, 2 Samuel 16, you'll see that as he flees the cities, he has three encounters with some friends and also with some enemies. And now he returns back into the city, and he has three encounters again with some people that he knows are friends, some people he knows are enemies, and someone that he's not quite sure about. It gives us this near-perfect parallel, and I think that it calls us to look at it carefully and observe how David behaves in the complexity of this situation that he is in. How he behaves in the complexity of the knowns and the unknowns of what he's dealing with, the friends and the enemies and rebels and uh, 
those who are loyal to him. So we're going to look at each one of these three encounters that he has as he goes back into the city to uh, retake his throne. Each one of these encounters. So we're going to actually go from the bottom and work our way up. So we're going to look at the last one, his encounter with Barzillai. So we're going to look at his encounter with a loyal friend and then an unknown friend. And then lastly, look at his encounter with a known enemy. So we're going to begin with this loyal friend, the one who's at the bottom. So whenever we come to the, the last section of the story, we read about David's encounter with this uh, elderly man who was very wealthy named Barzillai. Barzillai was not an Israelite. He lived on the other side of the Jordan, but he was a friend to David and he was loyal to David. So whenever David and his people who were still loyal to him had to flee across the Jordan outside of Israel and go into the city of uh, Mahanaim, Barzillai was David's benefactor while he was there. You know, in, in a sense, David, though he was king, was stripped of everything because he had to flee from his city and he had a lot of men, but he essentially had nothing. He needed resources. He needed a host. And so he has this, this patron, this uh, benefactor to take care of him, this wealthy older man named Barzillai. So Barzillai had been a dear, close, trusted friend to him in a time of great need. You know, that's somebody that you really value. If you've ever had someone like that before in your life, a, a close friend, a trusted person who was there for you in a time of need, well, then that is someone who, who becomes very dear to you, who becomes very important to you. And even if it's a relationship that only lasts for a short while, right? David and Barzillai's relationship did not span over the course of years. You know, it was probably less than a month. It, it, the, the events that happen here over these several chapters go very quickly. Yet, because of the friend that he was, it uh, builds a close bond in David's heart. And so David wants to show him generosity. He intends to show him his gratitude by now welcoming him, you know, the one who had welcomed him into his home, home and practiced hospitality and had been a patron to him. Now he wants to do the same thing in return to his good friend. He invites him to come into Jerusalem, his city, and to live with him there in Jerusalem and to always be taken care of at the king's side. He intends to show him kindness and gratitude for what he had done. But it says Barzillai is old. He, he says in there that he's 80 years old. He's an older man, and he says, you know, I don't know how much time I have left. And he says, don't I know what I want? You know, Barzillai is a, he's, he's a very realistic character. He, he acts and sounds a lot like any of your older uh, relatives that you've ever known. He said, you know, don't I know what I want for myself? He says, I want to spend the rest of my days in my home. He's like, I don't want to go with you. But he doesn't just want to turn down David. And so he says, here's Kimham. I know it's pronounced, uh, or it's spelled in the English C-H, but in the Hebrew, it's actually the, uh, the, the guttural H, which would be a K. Uh, I can't do it well. But it, it, it's Kimham. He says, here's Kimham. Scholars say it's probably one of his younger sons. He says, he'll go with you. So he accepts David's kindness and generosity, though he himself doesn't go. And so David receives Kimham, brings him into his kingdom, into his city, and he says, I will always do to him whatever is good in my eyes and in yours. This is familiar behavior with David. This is the kind of David that we saw before his sin with Bathsheba, who was a benevolent king showing kindness and showering generosity on his people and on his friends. And even the times we saw him trying to show kindness uh, and love, generosity to people who 
weren't Israelites, who weren't necessarily his friends. A benevolent king, showering gifts and generosity, kindness, love. This is a familiar David to us. He was generous towards his friends and those who helped him. And in this David, we can learn a great lesson for our lives, which is this, that you need to show kindness and generosity to loyal friends in the kingdom. Show kindness and generosity to loyal friends in the kingdom. There are people in your life who deserve your kindness. There are people in your life who deserve your kindness. Now, I know that grace often calls us to extend kindness to those who don't deserve it. Now, that is absolutely true. But let us also talk about, and let me, let me focus on right now, those who do deserve our kindness, to whom it is owed to them. This is a part of living in a covenantal community. This is the reason that we take church membership over here at Redeemer so seriously, and that we, we believe in, that we teach, and that we practice covenantal membership. You see, because we do not believe that the Christian life is lived out in uh, uh, commercial-type relationships, where I only go to a certain church, or you are only treated as our church as something that we can get uh, something of value out of you. You know, you can go to church with this attitude of, I'm only here to get out of it what I need and what I desire. And if it no longer fulfills that need, then I'll just find somewhere else to go. Or if now it's requiring something of me, if I'm going to have to give, if I'm going to have to contribute into this community, you know, it's calling something out of me, well then, you know, it's no longer a profitable relationship for me. This is a commercial or retail attitude taken towards church that many Christians today live with. But at Redeemer, we do not believe that this is how we ought to view the church community. Instead, we have a covenantal view of the church community. Let me explain it to you with this analogy. If, for those of you who are parents, you have a covenantal relationship with your children. Now, there are many times where, as a parent, the, the relationship doesn't seem profitable. It seems like you're putting a lot more into that relationship with your kids than you're getting out of it. Believe it or not, there's times where, even though they are so doggone cute, you know, and I believe that's why God makes, them, makes children so cute, because sometimes it's the only thing that's holding you together, right? <laughs> and there's times, even still, that even though they're so cute, you just, it's taking everything in you to not just take them and put them out the back door, you know, or, or lock them in their room, or, or just, or you leave and leave them in the house by themselves. But you don't do that. Why? You know, I know that, you know, you could be reported to the government and all the different things. <laughs> but that's not why. Any, any, any good parent, that's not why that they, they don't actually end up giving up. It's because they have a responsibility in that relationship. It's not just a relationship that's about what can I get out of this, the cuteness and the cuddles and the fun. It's, a, it's about the commitment that comes with responsibility to these children that tells you even though I'm putting a lot more into this than what I'm getting out right now, I cannot quit because I have a responsibility in this relationship. The same thing is true in your marriage. Some of you guys, you are blessed enough to have covenantal friendships. They're friendships with people who you, even whenever it is costing you something by being their friend, you're not going to turn your back on them because you have that relationship that comes with commitment and responsibility one to another. We believe that the church community is a covenantal relationship as well. 
we join into this covenant where we, where we uh, declare that I'm, I as an individual am committing myself to this community, and with that commitment, taking on the responsibilities that are going to come with it to being there in the community, to serving in that community, and to staying, being, uh, staying committed to that community even whenever it costs something from me or it requires me to put into it. It's a covenantal community. So here's what that means. If you live in a covenantal community, which is what the kingdom of God is, which is what the local church is, because there are because it is covenantal and there are certain responsibilities it means that we owe one another certain things paul talks about this at, towards the end of romans whenever he tells us how we ought to live with one another in the church he talks about showing kindness love patience he talks about mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who rejoice you can go and read this you can read also in, in, uh, in especially in chapter 13 where he says owe one another nothing except for love He talks about how in the covenantal community, we actually owe one another things. We have the privilege of demanding certain rights and privileges in the community, as well as whenever it's called upon us to give those things. And those include love. They include kindness. They include generosity. So once again, there are people in your life who deserve your kindness. They are your fellow co-laborers in the kingdom. They are your fellow church members. They're co-laborers in the gospel, fellow citizens in the kingdom, and some of them are even more than that. They are your friends. And so for those people who fall into those categories, they deserve to receive your love and your kindness. So show it to them. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27, it says, When it is within your power, don't withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. This is one of the marks of a righteous and wise person. Don't withhold the good to those people to whom it belongs. Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 as well. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So show kindness and generosity to your loyal friends in the kingdom. This is what we learn from David's interaction with Barzillai. But then we see, as we, as, like I said, we're going backwards in the story. So as we move up, as we re- rewind a little bit more in the story, we see this encounter that he has with Mephibosheth. Now, this is a familiar face to us if you've been with us in the series or if you've read 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, David shows kindness to a man named Mephibosheth. Right? It's like a tongue twister name. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. He was one of the last remaining uh, members of the household of Saul, and he was the last remaining descendant of Jonathan, who was David's friend. David had a covenantal friendship with Jonathan. You can go back and read the covenants that they made together in 1 Samuel, one of them being in 1 Samuel chapter 20. They had made a covenant together, and one of the terms of that covenant is that they would show kindness to one another's households and the descendants of their households forever. And so after David finally becomes king and he rests in his throne, he says, is there anyone left in Jonathan's household that I might show kindness to? Once again, he's fulfilling the terms of the covenant there. The only one left was this man named Mephibosheth who was lame. 
because earlier in his life, in the chaos of, um, of Saul's reign, and whenever Saul went out to battle, a caretaker had dropped him, and it broke his uh, feet, leaving him lame for the rest of his life. So there's this lame son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth, and David shows kindness to him. Whereas we see in ancient history, other kingdoms and other kings would have made sure to eradicate any of the remaining household of the previous kingdom because those were people who could be potential rivals to the throne. Instead of doing that, which is what kings would have normally done, he shows them kindness because of the covenant between them. But then in 2 Samuel chapter 16, whenever David is fleeing the city because of the coup being led against him, Ziba, who is Mephibosheth's servant, came to David and said, here are gifts for you on your journey. And he said Mephibosheth decided to stay back because he believes that the kingdom is now going to be his. So David is told by by Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, Mephibosheth has turned his back on you. He has rebelled against you as well. He has joined the coup. But now we run into him again. As David comes back into the city, we meet Mephibosheth. And though the last word that we heard about him was from Ziba, Mephibosheth now tells a different story. He has a contradicting story. He says, no, 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 it's not that I stayed back. Because I thought that I was going to be the next king, Ziba tricked me. I told him to prepare my donkey. The, I spent a lot of time studying that phrase there. It's kind of confusing because if he's lame, how can he saddle a donkey for himself? Uh, you would expect Ziba to do that for him. I think w- what he's saying there is that he had emphatically told Ziba to saddle his donkey so that he could ride it, but Ziba had, had, had tricked him. So Ziba leaves him. He flees. This is what he's telling David. It's not that I rebelled against you. My servant had tricked me. And he tries to show it with his very disheveled appearance. It says he hadn't taken care of his feet. He had let his facial hair grow out. He hadn't bathed. He was showing that ever since that time that David had fled, he had been in a state of mourning. So now what is David supposed to do? Because whenever Ziba has shown his loyalty to him and given him gifts and provisions that he needed for his journey uh, of evacuation, he had given all the land and the inheritance that he had bestowed to Mephibosheth, now to Ziba, because he believed that Mephibosheth had betrayed him. So he was giving those gifts of the land and so on to the loyal one. So what is he to do now? Because he, only, he, he has just two stories to work with. He doesn't have a lot of he doesn't have too much evidence to know who's actually telling him the truth, right? Mephibosheth, he has a different story and in his appearance it at least looks you know he's trying to give some credibility to his story through his appearance, but truly David um, you, you know you, you've got to uh, uh, give him some slack here. Truly David, he doesn't really know. He doesn't have enough evidence to know who's telling him the truth. Who should he trust? Moreover, on top of that, Ziba had shown him loyalty. And he had shown him a blessing by being there for him, whenever he was fleeing, and uh, giving him all these provisions. But on the other hand, he didn't go with them. He stayed back. Who is he supposed to trust? It's very hard for David to know. And even for us as the readers, getting to read the story objectively, even for us, it's hard to know. It doesn't tell us definitively who's telling the right story, who is telling the truth. And so what he does is he makes a judgment that is best in line with what he can know. 
They're both telling incredible stories. Both of them provided some evidence. And so what he does is he just, like I say, he gives a judgment based on what he best knows. And he also gives a judgment that doesn't require him to fully commit to either one of these untrustworthy stories. He says, I'm just going to split the land between the two of you. After that, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth says, just let him have all of it. I'm just happy you're back. Once again, that could be a statement that shows that he was the one being truly honest, you know, or maybe not. We don't know. We don't know. But notice that by splitting the land between them and saying, just let the matter be done with, David, in a sense, is not fully committing to either one of these stories that he doesn't know that if he could trust the stories or the persons. Here's some wisdom we can learn from this, our second big point. We cannot read hearts and cannot always make final judgments. We cannot read hearts and we cannot always make final judgments. We might also come to different places or times in our life where there are people that we're not sure if they're a friend or foe. We're not sure if they are trustworthy or untrustworthy. We're not, someone that, we're not sure if there's someone that we can really entrust our life to or our, our loyalty to and so on. Even with the best available evidence, even with the best available stories that we have, we're just not sure. We're stuck with a Zeba and a Mephibosheth, right? So what are we to do in these situations? Well, we are to recognize this. Like I said, that we cannot read hearts. We cannot know ultimately you know, who this person is based off of our limited understanding. We are not omniscient like the Lord is. We cannot read their hearts. And so there's times whenever we just have to withhold judgment. We have to withhold judgment. So what is the wise thing to do in this situation? Well, once again, learn from David. To do like David and don't fully commit yourself. Don't fully commit your your trust or fully commit your life or your loyalty to this person that you're not sure is trustworthy or not. The best practice is to neither make a rash judgment nor an unqualified acceptance and to not entrust yourself to someone who is untrustworthy. Let me try to give you some examples to show you how this can work out. So first of all, here's an example. Singles, those of you who are looking for a a, a spouse, a partner for the rest of your life, date with an eye towards marriage. Date with an eye towards marriage, understanding that whenever you are dating, whenever you are courting, or whenever you are talking to someone, that you are doing so so that you can learn and test this potential partner's reliability as a spouse. Like David was listening to Mephibosheth and Ziba's stories, trying to figure out who is the most trustworthy, listening to their stories, looking at the evidence. So in a sense, you should be doing the same whenever you are, whenever you are dating and you are um, getting to meet other people. And while you are doing this, you need to guard your heart. Guard your heart and withhold intimacy for the appropriate level of trustworthiness. This is why it is so damaging for for those of you who are, are, are not married or for those who are not married yet. This is why it is so damaging to give more intimacy than what is appropriate for the level of trust that has been established between you and the other person. I've seen through marriage counseling and I've seen through premarital counseling and through being a pastor how whenever couples give themselves into inappropriate sexual activity before marriage, it is a breeding ground for distrust because you are giving that other person far more vulnerability than they have earned. And you're, you're stepping into a context of extreme vulnerability where there has not been extreme commitment. 
through marriage. And so what does that do? It breeds distrust. You have not guarded your heart. And it's something that, no, that the Lord can forgive. And it's something that, because of the grace of the gospel, the, the Lord can bring healing in your marriage from that, from that distrust later on, okay? Um, but th- this is why I say you must guard your heart. So singles, what do you learn from this? Learn and guard your heart. In, the, in a context of church community, whenever we recognize that we cannot read hearts and we cannot always make final judgments, it means that you need to abstain from making judgments about your fellow church members or about other believers in the kingdom. We cannot read hearts. There are those who put on a really impressive show. There are those who can put on a really impressive appearance, but their heart is hiding a different reality. And on the other side, there are those who on on the outside do not look all that uh, impressive, but they've got hearts of gold. And it can also be easy for us to sometimes view, sometimes view the actions of our fellow church members, choices that they might make which would be different from ours, or to look at other believers in the kingdom, those who are part of other local churches, or even those who are part of other denominations, and to see some of their practices or to see some of their lifestyle choices and, and say to ourselves uh, and, and move to a point of, of judging them, right, and saying, oh, they cannot be true or as right as we are because look at them. But it'd be good for us to remember that we cannot read hearts and we cannot make final judgments. Abstain from making judgments about your fellow citizens in the kingdom and especially about your fellow church members. Because people are complex. You don't know what's beneath the surface. In the workplace, what this means is don't work for someone that you cannot trust. Don't work for someone that you cannot trust. Like I said, David chooses a path where he does not have to commit his life or commit himself fully to either one of the stories of Mephibosheth or Ziba. He refuses to fully commit himself. In your job and vocation, don't work for someone that you cannot trust. And on top of this, maintain healthy finances so that you aren't dependent on a single job. If the person that you have been working for shows themselves to be untrustworthy, you have the financial freedom to be able to leave that, that job and go to another one. You're not a slave to the paycheck that comes from that job. You know, we also have, coming up this week, uh, the, the midterm elections. And so even what we learn here from David can apply to the way that we think about politics and the, the way that we vote. When you vote, it often feels like trying to choose between a Zeba and a Mephibosheth. These two characters who are telling you two different stories, and you don't know if you can trust either one of them. And very often we've learned through American politics that you can't trust either one of them, right? And so what you're doing is you're just trying to gather all the best information that you can, right? So the first thing you should learn when it comes to voting wisely is that we ought to go to the booth with all the best wisdom and information that we can. This, first of all, means wisdom from Scripture, what it tells us about the type of leaders that we ought to endeavor to have for ourselves. We need to go into the voting booth with the wisdom of Scripture in our minds, of what it tells us, like I said, about the character of our leaders, what it tells us about the nature of truth, the nature of morality, and the nature of Christian or biblical justice. Having this in our mind, but then be able to gather information about the Zeba and Mephibosheths that we are voting for, to intelligently consider both of those options 
and then make a humble decision. Because at the end of the day, we only have those options. And so we're going to have to just commit ourselves to, uh, to, at least in our vote, to one of them. And so after gathering all the information, using the best wisdom that we can, and talking about it in, in community, we cast our vote, but we do so in a humble decision. What I mean by that is the attitude of casting your vote and saying, this is my candidate, let's hope for the best. <laughs> Understanding that they might let us down, they might be able to lose our vote in the future. You see, moreover, David's example here in this story teaches us also, uh, teach, gives us more insight into how we ought to vote and participate in political life. We do all that when it comes to the vote, but then afterwards, we, we learn that we do not fully entrust ourselves to any one candidate or to any one party. We don't entrust our life over to those chosen candidates. What this means is that they can lose our vote and they can lose our support. We are not going to give our, 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 our heart and soul over to them. So in order to make this possible, just to get even more practical with you, what this means we need to do is we need to support uh, small r republicanism. What I mean by that is the, the founder's vision of how the government ought to work. Support a system where there are checks and balances so that if you, based upon the best knowledge and wisdom you have, Vote someone into office who has now lost your loyalty. They can be, uh, they can be uh, outvoted. They can be removed from office. And they can also be, their power can be uh, shrunk down by a healthy system of checks and balances. By a healthy system of multiple layers where uh, no one person in the government, whether it be federal or state or so on, is so powerful that they cannot be stopped are resisted by the layers of smaller and forms of more local government between them. So if we are going to be the kind of people who recognizes we cannot judge hearts and we're not going to fully commit ourselves to any candidate or party, if we want to be able to live that way, then we need to care about republicanism. Like I said, I'm not talking about the party. I'm talking about small r, republicanism, right, where there are various levels of local and government that go all the way up where they are healthy, they are functioning, so that we don't have to give our lives over to any president or congressman or justice or so on. Lastly, like I said, we, we're, we're rewinding through the story, looking at the characters, and now we come upon the first encounter in David's return. The first encounter, whenever David comes back, is this man named Shimei. This is one who, like I said, we looked at someone who was a known friend, Barzillai. And then we look at these people that we're not so sure about, Ziba and Mephibosheth. And now we look at someone who's a known enemy, and that was this man named Shimei. Shimei was one of the ones who had met David whenever he was fleeing from Jerusalem back in chapter 16. And as David and his men are leaving the city, Shimei is uh, hurling curses at them. He's yelling curses. He is excited by David's downfall. He's throwing rocks at the king. And Abishai, the same man in this story, uh, suggests the same thing back then. In that story, he says, we should cut off this dog's head because he is cursing the king. And David stops him. Once again, here in this story, Shimei comes back. Abishai says, you know, you, you remember what this guy was saying to you and the way that he was treating us. He needs to be put to death for his actions and for what he did. 
And David instead says no. David says no. In contrast, back in 16, Shimei was yelling curses and he was throwing rocks. But this time, Shimei comes to him and he expresses repentance. It says that he falls face down before the king. and He says, my Lord, don't hold me guilty and don't remember your servant's wrongdoing on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May you not take it to heart, for your servant knows I have sinned. I think that we ought to look at Shimei's expression here and read it as genuine repentance. It's hard not to read what he says there and hear echoes of that in the New Testament in some of Jesus' parallels or some of the people who came before Jesus in repentance and expressing faith in him. He clearly, and without excuse, uh, admits and, and owns. He says, I have sinned. He recognizes it, and he owns it. He makes no excuses for it, and he throws himself down before the king's mercy. He expresses a sincere repentance, and how does David respond? David responds in forgiveness. David responds by saying, no, we're not going to put him to death. In his words to him, he actually is very succinct, at least in what we're told by the narrator. He simply says to him in verse 23, you will not die. That's all he says. And Shimei is forgiven. It's kind of interesting. If you've been with us through this series or if you're familiar with this story, it's reflective of another story that came before this one. Whenever David himself had been confronted in his sin with Bathsheba and of killing her husband Uriah, whenever he had been confronted in his sin by Nathan the prophet, he recognizes what he had done, and he expresses very similar repentance to Shimei here. He expresses that he has sinned. He makes no bones about it. He makes no excuses for it. He owns what he has done. And what is Nathan the prophet's word to David? He gives him judgment. He tells him about how the sword is going to come to his house and so on. But, the, but all he says about David's forgiveness is this, you will not die. It's the exact same words that David had heard from Nathan the prophet that he now is able to say to Shimei, who had shamed him and who had humiliated him and who had cursed him in a time of his greatest need, at one of his lowest of lows. You, you see in these, in, in, in these echoes between these two stories, we see a man who had experienced God's grace and his forgiveness, and he now extends that grace and forgiveness to his enemies. He had heard, you will not die, and now he, he extends it to Shimei. He who had experienced God's grace now extends it to Shimei. So our last point is this, that those who have been forgiven will forgive. Those who have been forgiven will forgive. Jesus taught this to his disciples in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 18, 21 through 35. Jesus tells them this parable of this man who had been forgiven an, an incredible, a humongous, and an astronomical debt from his master. His master forgave the debt. He let it go. But then this man who had been forgiven goes to someone else who had owed him some money. And in comparison to what he had just been forgiven, it was minuscule, nothing. Change compared to what he had just been forgiven. And he takes the, the one who owes him, he strangles him, and he has him thrown into prison. You see, he had been forgiven this astronomical debt, but that forgiveness had not gone to his heart 
because now he expressed no forgiveness to the one who owed him. The master in Jesus' parable says to this man, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Jesus' point in the parable and to his disciples and to us is that those who have been forgiven will then forgive. In another parable in the household of a Pharisee, he, he teaches in the principle that those who have been forgiven very much will then love very much. We see this pattern in Jesus' parables and in the New Testament, and then also in the life of David, that those who have experienced the gospel, those who have experienced God's grace and forgiveness, will then be transformed by it. They will be changed by it. You don't experience the grace and forgiveness of God and then move on being the same miserable, wicked person. You might just be a little less miserable and wicked, right? Sanctification can take a while. But the gospel changes you. It changes you. It transforms people. It goes like a, like a seed. It goes down and plants itself into the heart and sprouts new life. And we see this in, in this story through forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the most crucial and needed values in a healthy society. Because forgiveness cuts off the feedback loop of sin. Without forgiveness, sin creates a feedback loop of sin and of retribution and of more sin. And of sin for the sin and then of more sin on top. And of retribution and of retribution and of wickedness and wickedness, of violence and of violence. Without grace and forgiveness, the feedback loop of sin is unbreakable. We see how this happens, uh, or how this had happened in societies throughout history, particularly whenever the missionary St. Patrick went into Ireland to bring the gospel to the Celts. The Celtic society was extremely violent. And in fact, one of their values was retribution and of bloodshed for bloodshed. And so you had all of these, uh, the, these feuds between different tribes and different families and these horrible feedback loops of sin and of retribution and all of this violence and all of this bloodshed. But Patrick came in and he preached the gospel. But the gospel preached in Celtic society didn't just change individuals and it didn't just respond in you know, people walking down for altar calls, but it actually changed their society so that the society which had been based upon violence and of the, va- the, the value of revenge and of rep- uh, retribution had been transformed and flipped on its head to where now forgiveness cut off that loop. Because where there had been bad blood and where there had been this feedback loop of sin and revenge and where had there, there had been all these feuds, now the gospel came in, transformed hearts, and people forgave. That's just one example, but we see it happening in many, many different cultures and societies throughout history whenever Christianity comes into the picture. You see, forgiveness is one of the most crucial and needed values in any healthy society, but there must be a basis for forgiveness. There must be something that motivates and that empowers and makes possible this kind of forgiveness, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is needed. The gospel can transform, and it is so needed for any healthy society, all the way down from the smallest of societies, which is the family. The family of husband and wife, or of husband and wife and children. 
The family is a small society. It's a small government. The smallest there is and one of the most important. And in the smallest of societies, the families, forgiveness is so necessary. Forgiveness is necessary because we are living with sinners. We're living with broken people, with wicked people. So you can either have a family society that is dominated by the feedback loop of sin and of bitterness and of retribution and of backbiting and sin for sin, or you can have a a, a family society that instead is dominated by the gospel of grace and where whenever sin is committed, it is met with forgiveness instead of retribution that just deepens the wound and keeps the cycle going. From the small society of the family to the society of the church community. It's necessary in church community because, once again, we are, we are forgiven by God's grace and we are being redeemed day by day, but we still have the flesh. We're still sinners. We're still messy people. And so there will be hurts, there will be sins, and they need to be met with forgiveness and with reconciliation. All the way up to the largest of societies, the nation. We need to believe in the gospel enough to believe that the gospel can transform the hearts and minds of individuals, but then that transformation might then extend even to the the nation. That it can transform a culture. That it can transform a society so that you will have nations which are no longer dominated by the feedback loop of sin, of sin and of retribution, and where uh, the only thing that matters is who has the most power, so that those who hold the most power might, might judge or might, uh, might, might uh, bring to court or might cancel those who they disagree with. But instead, now forgiveness and reconciliation is practiced. How many of our culture wars could be eliminated or how many of them could the temperature at the very least be turned down so there could be solutions if forgiveness were brought into the picture? But you see, because our society has kicked out God, because it has kicked out the idea of God and the God who is there, who gives the ultimate standard for sin and righteousness, but also opens up the opportunity for grace, forgiveness, and redemption. Because our society has no concept of this God and of his grace and forgiveness, neither does our society. So there's no opportunities for forgiveness and for true reconciliation and harmony and healing between people. This gospel that transforms individuals can actually lead outward to transform larger-scale societies and cities, states, and nations. The gospel is the good news that we have the opportunity to hear, you will not die for your sin from God, which has been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, who did die for our sins that we might experience this grace. So that we might hear, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Embrace that forgiveness today. Accept that gospel today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we, we thank you for this gospel of grace that can transform our lives, that can transform our, our, our families, that can heal marriages that can bind up wounded relationships. And Lord, that can even bring wholeness to broken communities, cities, and nations. Father, we confess that though there's all kinds of work that needs to be done and there's all kinds of solutions that need to be considered, Lord, what is most fundamental and what is 
absolutely necessary to make any other solution viable is a revival. Is a whole scale return to you. Repentance from sin and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, as recipients of this gospel, make us heralds. Make us people who apply it through forgiveness in our communities and through declaring it to the lost and dying and broken around us. Lord, let this transformation that you bring also um, produce the renewal of our minds so we might live with wisdom and integrity, so we might live intelligently in the world that we are in. As we are engaged in public life, as we are engaged in the life of our communities, of our workplaces, that we might uh, live with wisdom in all these different circumstances. And Lord, let your gospel bring about beautiful community in our churches where we give to one another what each of our do. Mourning with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice, and owing one another nothing but love. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.